Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. In just a moment, I'm going to read the entire second chapter of James. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, we'll be reading there momentarily. It's good to see you all. Appreciate you being here. Hope you're all uh, uh, staying safe and uh, exercising caution as you go out into this world, this crazy world we live in. title of this message is Forged Faith. Forged Faith. Forged is an interesting word. Uh, It has three very different definitions if you look it up in the dictionary. Forged can mean uh, to be strengthened under the pressure of intense heat for a prolonged period of time, like forged steel. And faith can be forged like steel through the crucible of hardships. Forged can mean to push forward, to forge ahead on some goal or some uh, ambition that you have in your life. Forge ahead. And faith can be that kind of forge, forging ahead in, in growing spiritually and then there is the word forge that means to, uh, to fake something. Uh, and a faith, as we see in James chapter 2, faith can be a forgery. We want to make sure that the faith we have is a genuine faith. We want to make sure that it is true, saving faith. You may be familiar with the name Steve Green. Steve Green is the president of Hobby Lobby. His dad, David, who is still alive, is the uh, CEO of Hobby Lobby. And about 30 plus years ago, David uh, Green, the father, was working at TGNY and uh, decided to open up out of his basement a picture frame business. He and a friend of his, later on he bought his friend out and then went to a storefront and he opened up his first store called Hobby Lobby. And they expanded from uh, picture frames to all kinds of arts and crafts and, and over the years they've been a tremendous success. Uh, so much so that every member of the Green family is a billionaire. Uh, they earned it. They earned the money that they, they have uh, that they have gleaned. And David Green's son, Steve, is now the president of Hobby Lobby. He is also the co-founder of a museum that opened in 2017 in Washington, D.C. called the Museum of the Bible. The Green family uh, are, are Christians, devout Christian people. And David Green wanted to open, or Steve Green wanted to open a museum uh, in a, a major city in the United States that would be devoted to the, an, an immersive experience with the Bible and its ongoing impact in the world or on the world around us. So the museum opened in 2017. Back in 2009, uh, 11 years ago, 
Mr. Green started collecting a series of ancient manuscripts. He, he, he sought them out, and when he found them, uh, he, he approached the owners of those manuscripts, and he purchased a massive amount of ancient manuscripts of, of uh, Bible books. Among them, he bought 16 manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls collection. Now, if you Uh, know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know that the Dead Sea Scrolls are a a library of documents found in a scroll form in these clay pots in caves uh, in the area of called Qumram, which is near the Dead Sea in Israel, in uh, eastern Israel. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were found between 1946 and 1949. They originally were discovered by these boys who just happened to be uh, playing around in those caves, and they came across these these uh, clay uh, pots, and they were they had tops on them. They opened them up, and there were scrolls in them. And there's just this massive body of ancient documents. Most of it's in Hebrew, some of it is in Aramaic, and then some of it is in Greek. The important thing for those of us of Judeo-Christian faith is that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were copies of every Old Testament book, with the exception of one. Only the book of Esther was not included in the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts. And we think that the reason Esther was not there is because the ancient Essenes who put together these scrolls did not accept the book of Esther into the Old Testament because Esther does not mention God by name. And they couldn't fathom how a book that never mentions God could be included in the Old Testament. So every book of the Old Testament but Esther It's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They date to the first century. So very, very important. The the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Steve Green of Hobby Lobby and co-founder of the Museum of the Bible found someone who had 16 uh, of these ancient manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls collection, and he offered him a massive sum of money for these scrolls, and the man sold Steve Green all 16 manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls collection. And uh, when the museum opened in 2017, these 16 manuscripts were to be the centerpiece of the entire museum. There was one problem. Even though he had spent just over $500 million getting these manuscripts and opening this museum. It turns out that all 16 of the manuscripts were fake. They were forgeries. When the suspicions first came, first surfaced that they might be forgeries, Steve Green did something Uh, that he needs to be applauded for, I think. And that is, he said, hey, we don't want to open the the museum under the shadow of suspicion. And so he commissioned a group of scientists to take the manuscripts, all 16 rolls, and to examine them in every single way that scientific testing could be conducted. And he gave them independence. He did not try to sway them one way or the other, but he really hoped that they would confirm the authenticity of the manuscripts. And they studied them for six months. 
And I can only imagine what the meeting must have been like when they came to present their findings to him. Mr. Greenham, we regret to tell you, we really are sorry. We had hoped we'd find that they were authentic, but none of them were authentic. All of them were fake. Now imagine, if you can, and I, I mean, I can't imagine this, but imagine if, if you spent $500 million on something that you, you devoted not only your money to, but uh, almost a decade of your life to, you invested in it only to find out after you'd paid all that money and all that time that it was a forgery. James wrote his letter to people who professed to be Christians, like you and me. He wrote not to lost people, and so when you open the book of James, there's, there's some things you won't find. He, you will not find the plan of salvation. You will not find the Roman road. You will not find repent, believe, confess. You won't find any of that because he's not writing to lost people. He's writing to save people or people who profess to be saved. And, and he's writing to them to say, hey, you and I, profess to have true saving faith. In chapter two, he says, here's what true saving faith is not and what it is. And so when you open your Bibles to James chapter two, you'll find three sections in this one chapter. And each of these sections is dedicated to what I would call a faith forgery. And basically, James says, here's, here's what some people call faith, but it's really a forgery. Here's another one that's a forgery, another one's for, And then he's going to come back and he's going to say, but let me show you what true saving faith really looks like. So let's begin with the first section, James chapter 2, the first 13 verses. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes, expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you, drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. For if So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who've not shown mercy to others, but if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Uh, 
in each of these three sections, there's a key verse. The key verse in this first section is verse one. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? When he was a student, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India, strongly considered becoming a Christian. Now, keep in mind that uh, India is a, a Hindu nation, and the Hindu religion consists of what's called castes, C-A-S-T-E-S. Uh, a caste is kind of like a class. You're born into a caste, and you remain in that caste your entire life. Now, your, ho- your whole life, you stay in that one class, caste. There's no way for you to graduate to another one or even to be demoted to one below you, if there is one below you. But what you do, you live a good enough life. This is what they believe. You live a good enough life in this life so that when you die, you are reincarnated as another person or another creature into a higher caste than you were in your previous life. It's a ridiculous belief system. It's a very hopeless belief system. And Gandhi, although he was Hindu or had been raised Hindu, he, he saw the flaws in the Hindu religion. And, and so uh, somewhere along the way, he came across a Bible and he started reading the New Testament. He read Matthew and he read Mark and he liked what he saw in Matthew and Mark. So he read Luke and then he read John, the four gospels. And he was very impressed with what he saw in those four books about Jesus. And he decided... This sounds like a really good alternative to Hinduism. There's a whole lot of hope here. That, and there's no hope hardly in uh, Hinduism. And so uh, I, I, he decided he would consider becoming a Christian. But before he went whole hog into Christianity, he decided to visit a church in his hometown. It was a church that uh, uh, consisted of people who didn't look like him. And he walked into the church, and there were ushers in the front foyer of the church. He walks into the church, and the ushers met him, meet him at the door, and, and they refuse him a seat. Now, I wish he had been at a, I wish he had gone to a different church. I mean, there are Christian churches that would not have treated him this way, but this particular one, he entered the church, the ushers refused to give him a seat, and here's what they told him. You need to go and worship at a church with your own people. And he left and he never went to another Christian church. He said, and I quote, if Christians have caste differences also, then I might as well remain a Hindu, he said. On another occasion, he is reported to have said, when a Christian came and tried to witness to him, He's reported to have said to that person, you know, I really like your Jesus, but it's the followers of your Jesus that I have such an issue with. That tragic true story illustrates what James is confronting his readers with in 
these verses. His focus is on the sin of showing favoritism to one group over another. In this case, he's, he's focusing on showing favoritism to the rich while despising the poor. But you and I all know, we know that his words not only apply to uh, a prejudice that is favored toward the rich, it can be uh, based on economic status, it can be based on race, it can be based on ethnic uh, origin, it can be based on any number of things. To favor some people and disregard others based upon outward factors is a sin that plagued the church in James's day. It's plagued the church in every generation, and it plagues the church today. So what is James saying in these few verses? He's, he's, he's exposing what I call a discriminatory faith. And discriminatory faith is a forgery. True saving faith There's a typo on that slide. Instead of is, should say does. True saving faith does not discriminate against other people. And so what James is saying to his people is, if if you and I claim to be Christians, but whose uh, overall demeanor is one of being discriminatory toward people not like you, then he's saying to Jimmy Orr, Jimmy, you need to check to see if what you have is authentic. Because discriminatory faith is a forgery. Now let's look at the second section. Beginning with verse 14. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. We'd probably add, I'm praying for you. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, James says, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Dead faith. Verse 18, he says, now someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say to you, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, the key verse in this second section is verse 14. It's a question, two questions, really. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? And it's a rhetorical question whose answer is absolutely not. Dead faith. This past week, Mr. Buddy Squires called our house and he said, are y'all at home? We said, yep, we are. And he said, I'm going to come by there. I've got some produce for you. Uh, Mr. Buddy Squires and Mr. Roger Smith keep us in produce a lot. I appreciate them very much. But anyway, Buddy came by and he and Miss Shirley had been down in their garden and he had picked some uh, zucchini squash and some yellow squash and some peppers and, and, and cucumbers and had had them in a bag for us. And, and of course, he showed up at our front uh, step with his mask on and Miss Shirley was in back in the car and he says to me, he says, now, uh, in the next day or two, Miss Shirley... It was Miss Shirley's garden. Miss Shirley is going to have some green beans come in, and uh, we've already picked all we can handle. We're not picking anymore, so if you'd like to have some, and I thought he was going to say, I'll pick you some. That wasn't what he said. He said, if, if you want some, you can come and pick them. 
And I said, well, we would like to have some, and, and I, I, we, we will come pick them. He said, well, give me a call before you come. So Wednesday morning, Wednesday morning, I, Amanda gave me a, a, a basket, and I headed over to Mr. Buddy and Miss Shirley's house to pick green beans. And, and while I was there, I picked a basket full, and my, my clothes were soaking wet. Thankfully, Buddy had his green beans growing on these, the, this uh, the metal fence, this wire fence. So they were growing up. They were easy to handle. They were easy to pick. But still, it was just blazing hot, even though it was early. And I was just soaking wet. And, and I got my basket full, and I thought... Thank, thank you, good Lord, I'm, I'm through picking these beans. And just as I was picking that thing up to head back up to my car, Mr. Buddy shows up and he says, I've got you another box to fill up. I, miss, I said, Mr. Buddy, I've got more than that. Ah, you need to fill up this box too. Miss Shirley said you couldn't leave without filling up that box. And so I filled up another box. And while I was doing that, he came back down and he brought me another box filled with uh, fresh pulled corn and uh, hot peppers, mild peppers, because he knew Amanda likes hot peppers and I like mild peppers and, and some other stuff. And But I've got to thinking about what if I had gone over to Mr. Buddy and Miss Shirley's house And Mr. Buddy took me down to his garden and I had my basket ready and went down those green beans. And what if I couldn't find a single green bean on any of those vines? How awkward that would feel. Because Mr. Buddy had invited me there. Just imagine, if Mr. Buddy had invited me there, we'd gone down there and Mr. Buddy said, well, I know there's some beans here somewhere, but I, well, let's go over here. Well, let's go on the other side. And no beans. Well, let's go down here to the, toman- to the tomato plants. No tomatoes, no cucumbers, no, no squash, no nothing. Can you imagine how awkward that would have been? Mr. Buddy would have had to, he'd have said, I, I'm so sorry. I, if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have brought you But you see, that didn't happen. And Mr. Buddy knew that wouldn't happen because when he planted his garden a couple of months ago, three months ago, whenever it was, he knew that the plants he grew and the way he had had cultivated and taken care of, he knew that they would produce fruit or vegetables. And he wouldn't invite me there to pick them unless he knew that they were fruitful. Faith, James says, is the same way. Some people claim to have a saving faith, but when you look closer at that faith they claim to have, it's a faith that never produces any fruit. One of the things I love about the people in this church is there's so many fruit producers here, so many people doing so many different things that are producing fruit for the kingdom. But, you know, I do a lot of funerals. I speak at a lot of funerals about 35 of them a year because I'm a chaplain at, at Tim Parrott's funeral home. And, and there are a lot of folks, there are a lot of folks who, who will, will, will say, hey, this, uh, this person was a Christian. This person was a Christian. Well, well uh, did, did, they, did, they ever, did they ever go to church? Well, no, no, they didn't go. Well, did they ever, um, uh, did they ever uh, serve any? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, Listen, if you have true saving faith, true saving faith will produce fruit. So what James is describing in this second section is what I call dead faith. He's already said discriminatory faith is a forgery. Now he says dead faith is a forgery because true saving faith must produce good 
works. Jesus says the same thing, by the way, in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. This is a Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, is very similar to James's vocabulary. Chapter 7, verse 15 in Matthew, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? No. Figs from thistles? No. Likewise, every good tree, Jesus says, bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus says, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Now, in the event that you have dozed off to sleep while I, while I have preached thus far, wake up at this point. Because the next verse that Jesus says it should be one of the most earth-shaking, eye-opening, earthquaking verses that you'll ever read. Verse 21, Jesus says, get this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's that verse saying? It's saying that there, there's going to be a time when a lot of people will die and they'll stand before God and they'll, they'll say, God, I, I want you to know just, just in case the first baptism didn't take, I got baptized three times just to make sure. I, I've got Sunday school pins. I can show you my Bible full of notes and all this other kind of stuff. And God's, God's going to say, not to everybody now, but God's going to say to some of them, many of them, Jesus says, Jimmy, I, I don't know. What, what faith you had or you think you had, but I can tell you that you don't have what you needed to have. James says there will be many scenarios just like that. Verse 22, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I I never knew you. Discriminatory faith is a forgery. Dead faith is a forgery. Now look at the final section of James chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. If you say you have, you say you have faith for you believe there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this. King James says, even the devil believes this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. Now, don't misunderstand James here. James is not saying that our actions achieve salvation. He's not saying that by our good works we obtain salvation. No, he's saying that when we have true saving faith, the follow-up result will be that we will do good works, that we will have good deeds. 
And so verse 23, and so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, in the Old Testament. Another example, she was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith without good works. Now, just like there was a key verse in each of the first two sections, there's a key verse in this last section. And the key verse is verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good for you. And it is good. But even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about what Satan believes? Have you ever just thought about what he believes? Think about this. Here's what Satan believes. First off, Satan believes in one and only one God. Satan believes knows there's only one God and therefore believes it. But that's not all. Satan believes that this one God has revealed himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Satan knows this to be true and therefore believes it because he knows it's true. He knows it would be ridiculous to say, oh, I don't believe that because he knows it's true. He knows who Jesus is. Here's what else Satan believes. Satan believes that this one God has sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. Satan knows this and Satan believes this. What else does Satan believe? Satan believes that Jesus not only died on the cross, but Satan believes because he knows that Jesus rose from the dead. Does Satan really believe that? Absolutely he does. Satan believes that Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He knows that's true. Now think about that for a minute. The reason I go through this litany of things that he believes is because in a lot of churches, and there are a lot of pastors, regrettably, who when you have a service like this and at the end of it, somebody might come up uh, at the end of the service and say, Pastor, I want, I want to receive, I want Jesus in my life. I, I want, I, I'm, I'm not saved. I want to be saved. And, and a lot of times the pastor or a counselor will say, okay, well, first of all, do you believe in God? Yeah, I do believe in God. Okay, good. Do you believe uh, that this God uh, loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus in the world? Oh, yes, I believe that. Do you believe that this Jesus, God's son, Uh, died on a cross just for you. Yes, pastor, I believe that. Well, do you believe then that after Jesus died on the cross that he rose from the dead? Do you believe he was resurrected on Easter Sunday, resurrection Sunday? Yes, I do. And they'll say, well, there you go. If you have those beliefs checked, you're, you're a Christian, you're saved. Not quite. Why not, Jimmy? Why not, Pastor? Because Satan believes all of those things too. And Satan is the most lost person who's ever lived. Satan will never 
darken the doors of heaven. So what does it take? What does it take? It takes more than just checking off a certain number of beliefs. You see, for the one thing that Satan did not do, all these good beliefs, he he holds to them. Beliefs that you and I hold. I'm telling you, folks, he could show up here today, and if we had Sunday school, which we're not going to have until August, but if we had Sunday school, he could get up and, and say, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Teacher, if you don't mind, uh, I know this passage really good. Can I teach it today? And he could teach it, and we'd say, wow, God knows his Bible, and he does, but he's lost. The one thing Satan doesn't have is he does not believe that he needs to commit himself to Jesus as the Lord of his life. He believes in God. He believes God sent Jesus. He believes Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He believes Jesus rose from the dead. He knows all things to be true, all those things. But he's, he's, I'm not going to give him my life. Jesus, again, made a similar statement. You see, James is saying, if your faith is not better than Satan's, then what you have is a forgery. Jesus is going to go and he's going to say, if your faith is not better than uh, the religious leaders, the most devout religious leaders of his day, it's also a forgery. Demonic faith is a forgery because true saving faith consists of more than just the checking off of a few beliefs and saying the right words. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, again the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, that is your faith, surpasses, exceeds that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we combine that with what James is saying, James and Jesus together are saying this, you, you, you say you have true saving faith, but your faith looks a lot like the Pharisees. And your faith looks a lot like Satan's. In order for my faith to be true saving faith, it has to surpass that of Satan and surpass that of the Pharisees. Well, If discriminatory faith is fake, and if a fruitless dead faith is fake, and if a demonic faith is fake, then what is true saving faith? And I want to submit to you that true saving faith is a dynamic faith. Dynamic means it shows itself. It is an active faith. It is a demonstrative faith. You see, true saving faith shows itself first in unconditional love for others. True saving faith reveals itself through producing fruit, not just professing beliefs. True saving faith is more than just accurate beliefs, even accurate beliefs about God. True saving faith is dynamic. It is demonstrative. It works. It it puts shoes and flesh and rubber to the road of faith. Which brings me back to Steve Green, founder of the Museum of the Bible. He commissioned a study of the manuscripts that he had purchased for multiple millions of dollars. He commissioned the study in hopes of confirming the authenticity of those documents he had paid so much for But his own team, his own scientific team confirmed the hard truth. The documents were fake. 
I would hate very much to get to heaven only to have God say, Jimmy, I know you claim to have faith and I know you claim to be a pastor. I know you claim to preach and all this. But what you had wasn't what you thought you had. And so I I need to look at my own faith and I, I need to see how it stacks up against the real thing. I know I need to do that. I'm just asking you if you need to. I urge you to and, and do it now. Don't, don't wait. Don't wait till we get before, stand up before God. Cause if we wait till then it's too late. It's too late. Do it now. Make sure you got the real thing now. Let's pray. Lord, you love us, and it is more important to you that we have true saving faith than it is than it was to James, than it was to anybody else. It's important to you, and you want it to be important to us, because according to your word, there will be some of us who lived our whole adult lives thinking we had the real thing, only to find out that we didn't. And wow, what a shocking disappointment that would be. Lord, sit down with us and help us to make sure while we're here. In Christ's name, amen.